I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our zero-carbon future a reality. In this episode, my conversation with Susan Kennedy, the founder of Advanced Microgrid Solutions. AMS created a platform for managing battery storage across buildings, turning them into virtual power plants. The company raised $34 million from a who's who list of strategic investors and was eventually acquired by the battery developer Fluence. In this interview, I talked with Susan about how she created AMS and then transformed it from a project developer into a software-based platform for the smart grid. This conversation was recorded live at Powerhouse's headquarters in Oakland, California in 2018. Our friend venture investor Shale Khan sets the scene. So uh, people say that you always remember where you were uh, when you first saw or heard about the moon landing. Uh, you can call me a, a embarrassing, hopeless energy wonk, but I actually do remember the moment and the place that I was in when I first heard about Advanced Microgrid Solutions, uh, the company that Susan Kennedy founded and leads today. So let me tell you about it. It was November 2014. Uh, and Southern California Edison had just announced this groundbreaking procurement for 250 megawatts of battery storage as part of a mix of resources that were going to replace San Onofre, this retiring nuclear plant in Southern California. At the time, uh, for anyone who was paying attention to the energy storage world, this was huge. This 250 megawatt procurement was by far the largest utility procurement of energy storage in the world at that point. And its success or potentially its failure would clearly serve as a signal uh, to other utilities, to grid operators, to countries about the future of energy storage in the electricity sector. So there I am, and I'm looking through the list of winners um, for this procurement, and most of them were familiar names, companies that had been relatively early to the energy storage game, companies like AES and NRG, relatively big companies. And then I saw that there was a 50 megawatt contract out of this procurement that was awarded to Advanced Microgrid Solutions, which I'd never heard of, which was frustrating for me because it was my job to know this kind of thing at the time. So I'm frantically Googling uh, to learn a little bit more about AMS at the time. And the more I read about it, the more interesting it became. Not only was AMS planning to build 50 megawatts of batteries for SCE to mitigate peak capacity needs on the grid, but it was planning to install those batteries behind the meter on customer premises and planning to simultaneously use those batteries to save customers money on their bill by reducing demand charges. Now, even back in 2014, those of us who were paying attention to the energy storage market at the time spent a lot of time talking about the potential of batteries for value stacking, using one battery for multiple purposes simultaneously and thus achieving more revenue than you would otherwise be able to achieve. It's one of the greatest benefits of batteries over other resources in general. But at that point, it was basically all theoretical. And here was a company that I'd never heard of uh, winning what was at the time a, an absolutely massive contract to do exactly that. So uh, it sounded to me like a recipe for disaster. Uh, and yet, I'm happy to say that it worked. Those projects are becoming operational. They are doing exactly what they promised. Many more have followed that are doing the same thing. 
And uh, for me, it has come full circle now because the company that I work for today, Energy Impact Partners, is a proud investor in AMS. But the story of AMS is, is far more interesting than just the story of a single energy storage procurement or even an energy storage pioneer in the market. Susan's personal story, which includes serving at the California Utility Regulator and for Governor Schwarzenegger before bailing on the public sector to start a company, is equally riveting. So take a mental snapshot of where you are right now. Maybe we can convince you that this will be your moon landing. And with no further ado, Emily Kirsch interviewing Susan Kennedy. Thank you. Welcome to Powerhouse and welcome to What It Takes. I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO here at Powerhouse. And every month on What It Takes, we feature a founder of one of the most innovative companies in clean energy, and they tell the personal story of how they built their business. And we're so excited this month to feature Susan Kennedy, founder and CEO of Advanced Microgrid Solutions. So Susan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Happy to have you here. So Uh, Susan, you grew up in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Tell us a little bit about what that was like and what you were like. Uh, Well, it was a really long time ago, so uh, it's a little hard to reach back. But um, I grew up on the Jersey Shore. I remember when I was 15 years old seeing the the pink flyer on the pizza place uh, wall for a guy named Bruce Springsteen who was playing at the local bar called the Stone Pony. And I thought, what a strange name that is, and I'll never forget. That was a moment I, in my life I'll never forget. And we used to go down and see Bruce Springsteen at the, uh, at the, uh, at the Stone Pony. But, um, you know, growing up on the Jersey Shore, it was, it, was, it was fun. It was a beach community. It was, uh, uh, you know, kind of wild, if you will. So I have, I've got my sordid past from, uh, from those days on the Jersey Shore. But then I moved to the Amish country. Uh, I'm not sure if that was punishment or what it was, but my my <laughs> father worked for RCA Electronics, and he moved to uh, we moved us to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, um, and where I was then the black sheep of the entire community because of my sordid past on the Jersey Shore. Uh, Can we taught, talk a little bit about this past? What are I we taught, talking about? I taught them a few things, but um, but uh, but yeah. So it was, it, and Lancaster was a farm community, uh, and so I went to high school there. My last two years of high school there, and then. My family stayed in, in Lancaster, and I uh, went on and started traveling the country when I was uh, 17 and a half. Yeah, and I heard you you doubled up on classes so that you could finish high school early. First of all, who does that? Second of all, what did you do after you, gra- you, you graduated early, and then where did you go? I, uh, there were probably 50 or 60 of us that, that graduated early, mm-hmm. and uh, my, um, uh, we were going to graduate with the valedictorian for the regular class giving our speech, and, I, and that just seemed just wrong to me. So I protested and started a little gathering petition saying that you know, they shouldn't, shouldn't be allowed to do that, so they made me give the speech. So I gave the speech at my graduating class. Um, I wasn't valedictorian by any stretch. Um, and then uh, we, we, uh, I just got on the road and went with some friends. We, 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 I tried three times to make it out to California to follow my big brother, and um, I got as far as Florida the first time and hung out there for about <laughs> eight months. And then I got as far as Colorado the second time. Uh, and then the uh, third time I made it all the way out to California. And I crossed the border into Los Angeles on my 20th birthday. Oh, wow. So. Um, and then what did, what did you do when you got here? You know, I, I got involved with politics at a really early age. Uh, I was, when I was probably 12 years old, I started following uh, 
the career of Jane Fonda when she was a political activist during the during the, the Vietnam War, and I had never seen a movie of hers, but I remember being really fascinated by her take her taking political stances uh, that made her incredibly unpopular. And for a 12-year-old to watch somebody do something that deliberately made them unpopular was mind-blowing to me. Um, and I so I used to collect all the news articles about her, and I remember my she won the the. Um, she won the Academy Award for Clute in 1972, and I remember asking my, my father, and I saw it in the papers, what does left wing mean? And he said, it means bad. <laughs> so, <laughs> that was my first political experience. Uh, but, uh, so I moved out to, in Pennsylvania, I was in the, around the Three Mile Island nuclear plant when they had the accident. And so uh, that was my very first uh, kind of activist experience in that we were trying to, uh, I was watching all these uh, environmental groups like the Sierra Club and others trying to prevent contaminated water from being dumped into the Susquehanna River. And uh, and so that was a huge experience for me. I remember being around the plant and the, there were Geiger counters and guys in full full hazmat gears for, you know, that took up entire blocks surrounding the plant. And uh, that was a pretty moving, jarring experience for me. And when I came out to California, I started volunteering for uh, a group called Campaign for Economic Democracy, and it was a you know, heavy into the environmental, uh, economic justice, and an environmental uh, uh, community issues. And I learned to organize. I learned how to be a, a field organizer, which a lot of women didn't know mm-hmm. at the time. A lot of women kind of went into, you know, PR and fundraising and 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 uh, volunteer coordination. And I somehow fell into actually doing the hardcore field organizing. So I learned from some of the best in the business how to, how to, how to grow a crowd, how to get people to join an organization and, uh, and work on campaigns. So we were, um, we were taught very, very concrete skills on, you know, organizing for, to win elections. And it, it served me really well. And it started my political career. It was, uh, was actually started in, in Southern California. Were you doing this during college instead of college? Huh. That's a good story. Um, <laughs> it took me, I graduated from college when I was in the governor's office at 46, 47 something. And it took me, I started going to college before I left Pennsylvania when I was, uh, when I was 17 and a half. So, so how many years? <laughs> oh, I lost count. I lost count. But, but it, as I got more and more involved with college, I went to college in, uh, in a number of places. Uh, most of the, of the time was at San Francisco State University after I moved to Northern California. But, uh, it's amazing how the uh, primaries and the general election coincide with midterms and finals. So I, had, I would start out taking a full load, and then I would drop down. You know, I, I wouldn't be able to finish the classes and stuff. So I started. You know, I took less and less. I, I got to be a. I think I turned a senior, and then I, I just I was working full time in politics, and I I never I didn't graduate. And then uh, after I was done my first uh, major stint in the governor's office in uh, when I was you know in my forties, I. Um, I went on the Public Utilities Commission, and I decided I would finish my... I promised my father that I would get my college degree because neither of my parents went to college. So uh, I started going to... I, I went back to college when I was on the Public Utilities Commission. And you... So your career is advancing in politics and on the I, My career had absolutely taken off. I was already in Sacramento three jobs later. And I, yeah, without a, without Did a degree. Did anyone ever say, what are you doing? You don't have a degree. You don't belong here. No, but I, but I had some really uh, interesting, embarrassing experiences because when you're in politics and you're pretty, you get pretty high up, you can't, 
you can't fib about that. And politicians have been busted seriously. Yeah. And I would be introduced, and so many, the higher I got in politics, the more I would be introduced as having graduated. And I would have to correct people. Wow. And there was one time in particular, I was speaking at Stanford University. I was surrounded by guys with letters that went <laughs> out the wazoo next to their name. And somebody introduced me as, as having graduated. And I had to correct him, you know, in front of this entire room of Stanford scientists that I did not have. I did not graduate. That was very motivational. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> very motivational experience. But oh. so yeah, so I ended up going. I ended up uh, deciding to go back to college when I was at on the PUC. And then while I was on the PUC, I was there for three years. And then Schwarzenegger asked me to come up to Sacramento and be his chief of staff. And I thought, I do not want to drive. I was at St. Mary's College. I was doing the online course, which is frankly, more rigorous than any classroom I've ever been in. And, uh, and it's because it's very, very intense and hands-on. You kind of can't fake it with the courses like that. And I, I, it was the last chance I was going to have to graduate. And I, so I, I didn't want to not go. But here I am going to be the chief of staff to the governor. So I just I'm just going to try it. I'm just going to get up every day. I'm going to try and do the classes and be governor's chief of staff. And, and I went for the last year and a half, you know, I finished the class. But I was, we were negotiating AB 32, the big carbon, you know, climate change uh, legislation. And I'll never forget the night we were negotiating the bill. It was like 1130 at night. I had 30 more minutes to file something for my class. And I was like, I was like, hold on, just hold on. And then I had to like finish this and send it off. And then, then I could, you know, finish negotiations. Finish, finish <laughs> yeah. negotiations for the most yes. important climate legislation yeah. in the state of And I remember country. driving back and forth because I was living in Marin at the time. So I, would, I was commuting. I'm commuting and driving back and forth. And as I was going down, uh, you know, Highway 37 in the middle of the night going home, I had to listen to books on tape. One of them was Dante's Inferno. So I'm listening to Dante's Inferno, books on tape, driving down a completely dark, you know, long stretch of road. It was very uh, impressions. I really have a very big impression on me. When, when Schwarzenegger asked you to be chief of staff, did you know him? Did you like him? What did you think about him getting I, elected? Um, by the time he asked me, I, I, I knew him and I was supportive. But uh, when I first, um, when I was working for Governor Davis, remember, I, I worked for his predecessor and I worked for four years from beginning to end of the first term of the Davis administration. And I left uh, and went on the Public Utilities Commission before the recall happened. So when the and I, when the recall happened, I I hated him just like everybody else. And you know, and I tried to help Gray Davis stay in office. And you know, I thought it was a, a, a travesty. And you know, I, I did what I could. And he he. So I I banged the drums and hated him just like everybody else. But I was watching what he was trying to do when he was in office and on the environmental issues and on economic issues and on a bunch of issues that were, you know, where, where it was his issue and not the Republican Party issue, I agreed with everything he was trying to achieve. And, and it became a really tough, tough issue for me because I remember one night in particular, I'm at dinner with some friends of mine, a, a legislator, a powerful legislator, another you know, guy who did a lot of fundraising for, for, for Gray Davis when we were in the Davis administration, another friend, very high political. And they were all railing on Schwarzenegger, just beating him up, just like saying all, the, you know, all this crap about him. And I, I finally said, okay, wait a minute. You, you, we did, you're, what, what is wrong with Schwarzenegger? And he said, well, he cut education funding. He decimated education funding. I said, Gray Davis did the exact same thing. You were there. You actually sponsored the bill that, he, that, that had to cut education funding during the, uh, the dot-com bubble when we were in office. What else? And, you know, everything they said, I was able to come back and say, Schwarzenegger is better on that issue than any Democrat we've ever worked for. 
you know, it, it was like a is a seminal moment for me because I realized I cannot be honest and say I won't be afraid to support somebody just because they have an R next to their name. And and uh, so it was. I I kind of came out as a Schwarzenegger supporter <laughs> at that at that dinner. But it was a you know I just realized I was so done with partisan politics. I had spent twenty five years in the Democratic Party, and I. I had I wanted nothing to do with the Democratic Party after what I saw happen in Sacramento. Mm-hmm. I was out, and Schwarzenegger actually brought me back in and made me believe mm-hmm. again. Wow! And so you you're at the pinnacle of state politics. You had worked in federal policy. You worked so Gray Davis, Schwarzenegger, Feinstein had worked on the PUC. And then what made you want to leave all of that? to start a company? Well, first of all, they kicked me out. I mean, when you, when you end up, when your term ends, you kind of, it's bye-bye. You uh-huh. know? So, uh, you know, in the, um, I didn't want to stay, I was really, when I first got involved in politics, I was involved in campaigns, right? So I, I, it was kind of weird for me to get sucked into long-term government. Uh, so when I was in Washington with, Governor, with, uh, with Senator Feinstein, she kind of wanted me to stay and you know, stay with her, but I also wanted her to run for governor. Mm-hmm. And when she decided not to run for governor, I sort of saw it as just five hours east of Sacramento, right? You just get a, you know, you get on a plane, you come home. But she decided to stay and be a senator, and I wanted to come. I really wanted to work in California politics, so I left Washington. I didn't want to become a lifer in Washington. And uh, and then when I came back to help, I ran. I helped run. Uh, the party operations for Gray Davis when he ran for for governor, which really pissed off Feinstein at the time, but uh, they were not they were not pals at the time. But um, th- so I then I got that's how I got involved with Gray Davis, and he then asked me to come up and be um, the, the cabinet secretary. Mm-hmm. And so the, so through all of that experience in politics, was there something that shifted that made you say other than getting kicked out? Was there something that shifted for you that made you want to leave and go to, into the private sector? No, I think, um, you know, once you're the chief of staff to the governor of California, it doesn't get much better than that. And so it, there, there isn't a lot of really fun, uh, creative, impactful things I felt like I could do in government other than run for office myself. And that was not something I ever, ever wanted to do. So I, it was really a jarring, life-changing event. It was, happened to be the same year I turned 50. So it was a big midlife crisis to, uh, you know, wake up the day after we swore in the new governor in my home office with all my boxes and books packed around me and think, you know, what am I going to do next? Uh, and I was, I was lucky. People, um, uh, you know, people told me that I had so much valuable experience that I could make a ton of money as a consultant. I had, I had no idea what even that meant. And lo and behold, for the first year or two, uh, you know, people paid me obscene amounts of money just to tell them how government worked and how to get things done. I didn't want to lobby. I, I, I would never, I would, I'd rather be dead than, you know, than become a lobbyist. But I, um, consulting was kind of fun, made a lot of money, was able to then put a little money away in a retirement fund. But then I, but I was still working with Schwarzenegger and, and others, and I was still, uh, energy had been a theme throughout my entire career. And so I, a lot of the consulting I was doing kept me very, very engaged with all the utilities, with all the, the, a lot of the major organizations that were trying to, uh, you know, make things happen in the clean tech and infratech space. And so that was, you know, it kept me engaged. And then um, there was a, a particular meeting with you remember when the initiative to overturn AB 32 was on the ballot, AB 23? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, Prop 23. Uh, Prop 23. Energy, Prop, yeah. And, and so 
Schwarzenegger, uh, Tom Steyer, and uh, uh, former Secretary George Schultz were the campaign chairs for that initiative. And we beat that by, I helped with that, we beat that by 20 points. And there was a moment in time after that initiative when we were down, sitting down at Secretary Schultz's house down at, down at Stanford, and uh, Schwarzenegger and Steyer were, were like um, beating their chest saying, well, you know, let's go tell Washington how to do energy policy. And Schultz said, um, down boys. Let's make sure we're actually implementing these policies right at home before we go preaching to everybody else about how to get it done. Are we implementing all of these different environmental initiatives and and energy initiatives in in a manner that is cost effective and isn't going to lead to bad outcomes? And they all looked at me uh, since that was my, my sphere. And so that actually started me on a mission talking to some of all my friends that were in the government, still in the government, and all these policymaking bodies about how all these different initiatives work together. The, the renewable portfolio standard, at the time it was 33%. The uh, push towards energy efficiency and distributed generation, uh, you know, carbon and uh, the cap and trade. So uh, we started a dialogue about, wow, we're actually headed for a bit of a problem. We started seeing the duck curve then. And what was happening with the duck curve was the, the way the, the, the regulatory bodies and the utilities respond to that since they move very, their rules are very lethargic. They can't, they're not very nimble. They can't be nimble even if they wanted to be. They were starting to build up redundant s- systems so that instead of being able to handle the neck of the duck, they, they were forced to actually have things on, uh, resources on spinning reserve, and that was wildly expensive. So it became really clear that we were in a danger zone. If we did not figure out how to cost-effectively integrate renewables into the grid, then, we, then California was going to end up as the poster child for some of the most expensive electricity and one of the most unstable systems on the planet, which would seal the fate of clean clean energy in terms of the future of going renewable and going uh, clean. So I, I started working with a friend of mine, Jackie Fannensteel, who was the chair of the Energy Commission when she was in office, and then she went uh, to the Navy and we helped President Obama uh, at the at the Navy's Naval Office on a lot of the microgrid renewable energy stuff they did. So Jackie and I started Advanced Microgrid with the, the thesis that the only way to cost effectively balance supply and demand with this now very dramatically different uh, energy uh, matrix where intermittent supply and dynamic demand are making supply and demand balancing very challenging, the only way to effectively do that was to actually harness the load and, and reach into the load erase the line between at the distribution system between the customer load, the retail, and the, and the wholesale side. It, eliminate the line, that are, the artificial separation between the end-use customer and the resources to supply the grid. And so we, we focused on, uh, uh, we started a company with the idea that we would harness these new technologies. I had fallen in love with battery technology and the and load control software, which has been around for generations. You combine those two things because the EV market had made the price point for batteries come down where now we're talking potential to be commercially viable at a grid scale level behind the meter that you might be able to design projects harnessing the load and create an aggregated, very powerful tool for balancing supply and demand in the most cost-effective way possible. So it was, it was kind of from that meeting with Schwarzenegger that, and the meetings we started to, uh, amongst ourselves to rationalize the policies, and then uh, we got this notion, and, that's, and we were off to the races. Did you have any money to start, or was it all just I, savings? I actually don't 
remember making the decision to, to, to start. I don't remember making the decision to, to bid on the Southern California Edison uh, contract. Next thing I know, I'm a, I'm a couple out? hundred thousand dollars into it. And next thing I know, I'm bidding on the contract. I have no idea when I decided to do that. <laughs> but it was just one foot in front of the other. But when San Onofre was taken offline in Southern California, it became, Southern California became ground zero for a changing grid. 2,500 megawatts of emission-free uh, resource in the LA basin in a distribution system that was designed around the entire concept that you cannot store energy. So when that was taken out, certain areas of the grid in the LA basin became very vulnerable. I mean, if you, if you know anything about the Orange County area, you've got the Johanna Santiago substation. One of those substations is carrying so much load that the room, with the way it was said to me, is if a guy drops a wrench in that, you know, in the Johanna, in this one substation area, you could cascade outages around the Southland because it's like there's so there's so much load now now being pushed onto certain areas of the grid because of the way because of San Onofre taken out. So it, we it became the perfect proving ground for this new set of technologies because Southern California Edison was the first in the in the in a unique position where you can't build a peaker plant in downtown L.A. I don't care if you wanted to. You cannot solve that problem in that area with traditional fossil fuel resources. So the utility had a need to figure out how to do it differently. And we had this idea of, of using batteries to harness the load. And I understood, because of my sentence on the Public Utilities Commission, I understood how the utilities think, how they operate, how they, operate, how they plan the distribution system. So I went down and talked to the guys at, 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 at SCE, as, you know, throughout the organization, and it said, what if we brought you a project that looked like this? And they said, we would really like it because we want to buy storage, and, and right now everything we see is too expensive. They saw everything they were seeing was sort of front of the meter, big, big projects, and they wanted to try something different and do it behind the meter, but they hadn't seen any companies that were doing it. Uh, they had, at the, only time, the only company I knew of at the time were STEM and Green Charge. I actually introduced Edison to STEM. I said, go look up what some of these companies are doing with batteries behind the meter. And the, and the, the feedback I got from them was, we would actually like this. I said, you're going to have to change your procurement. Because if you try to procure with these pro forma contract structures for generation or demand response, none of us would even qualify. We would be technically non-compliant with your bid. So they looked at the way they were procuring and actually changed the procurement process to open it up for companies wow. like STEM, like ours, and behind the meter resources to be able to give them an avenue, give us an avenue to actually bid on the project. So you're saying you're f the first money into the company came from a customer contract. You didn't know. Oh no, that came from me. Oh, I, that, yeah, that came from, that came from my, that came from the, the savings. I finally had a chance to, to, to save up, okay. went back out the door. After pretty quickly. you, after you, the, the next money in, was it this customer? Was nope. it SoCalEd? Nope. It was angel funding. Okay. So I had, uh, I had some really good friends of mine, um, a guy named Keith Brackpool, who, um, uh, worked a lot on water issues. I worked with him on a number of water issues, and he's a really good friend and a, a serial entrepreneur into infrastructure, very, very smart guy. And um, the mayor of Louisville, Kentucky, uh, mayor, he's mayor today, rising star in the Democratic Party, he, uh, there's a fishing trip in Iceland every year. And, uh, and I went, I, we were on our way in the car up to the river in Iceland, and I was talking about how I wanted to... Yeah, I had this idea and I wanted to start this company. And in the three-hour trip it took to get up to the river, these guys schooled me on everything there was to know about pre-money valuation and how to structure the company and, and stuff. And my company was born with angel funding from wow. those guys and, and Schwarzenegger. 
Wow. Oh, wow. Schwarzenegger himself invested. Yeah. That's, that's pretty cool. Um, and then after that, did you do a typical raise structure where you, so you did kind of friends and family and then a seed round and an A? The, the friends and family was my angel round. So we had, okay. we raised a, a million and a half in the first and then in a convertible note. And then uh, we did a second convertible note, same angels. Um, and then, uh, then we did an A. So we raised about $3 million in a, in a seed round. Um, and then we did a, a proper A round in which uh, Nancy Fund and DBL were the lead investor. Gotcha. Um, and this is all happening in 2014, 2015? 2014. Right? 2014. Gotcha. 2014. Um, what did that money allow you to do? Well, when I first started the company, I assumed that, I mean, we, I assumed that we were going to be sort of the project designers and project developers. And I was going to use everyone else's best in class technology. One of the principles of the, of the company, one of the principal concepts is don't get tied to it. Don't try and sell technology. Uh, instead of bringing a technology to market, you want to bring the market to the technology because the real, the real change is going to happen not because battery technology is going to get that good. Batteries have been around forever, right? It's about the market allowing these kind of resources to participate. And so I brought together people I, who understood how the energy markets work and then uh, and knew how to procure and build projects. Had been in the clean tech industry for a while, wind, wind and solar. And then we partnered with we, uh, with companies that produce the batteries. Um, we were Tesla's first big um, customer, first very large customer. Wow. I, for a while, we were we stayed their largest customer for their power packs, because we bought like we negotiated like five hundred hours. I couldn't get battery companies to return my phone calls before we won the SCE contract. Mm-hmm. Um, I was able to use Tesla when we bid because I knew those guys because we helped them we helped them get into the Numi plant and I knew them from uh, from my time in government and so I had a working relationship with Tesla when we first prepared the the bid and um, and so when we when we uh, when we after we won the bid every battery manufacturer we was one of the only really large behind the meter contracts in the world because the other large ones they had their own. Uh, their, their own equipment. So I was the only game in town. So I got the best look at batteries and software from everyone in the market. And we just started interviewing and looking around, like whose software are we going to use and uh, whose batteries are we going to use? Tesla was by far and away the best. There was no question we, 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 that Tesla was, was the, 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 the battery technology to use. But nobody had the software we needed. I didn't expect that at the time, uh, but everybody had a piece of the puzzle. They had, uh, batter- they had software technology that either did demand charge management, they specialized in demand charge management, or they specialized in frequency regulation because of the PJM market, uh, or they specialized in traditional demand response and they were getting into batteries, or they were at the, like a, 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 the, the DERMS layer or the, the, the energy management layer from a utility perspective where they, they knew how to operate distributed assets with opera- within operational constraints of the grid, but nobody had the software that would actually identify the economic value of uh, uh, using battery as the load control technology to create the greatest economic value for the end-use customer while simultaneously aggregating uh, grid-scale resources for capacity, flexible capacity on the grid. So we had to do it ourselves. And uh, we, I, I brought in some really talented people that I you know, I didn't, I didn't know they could do it, but I trusted they could do it. I trusted they knew. And the, and the single most important thing was I trusted they understood what we were trying to do. And if, we, if, I, if I didn't bring in people who had that, who could share that vision of what we were going to do with the technology, 
I think I could have gone down a really strange path, but um, but that's how we. So we ended up building a software platform, and 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 you know, two years later, we realized that it was it's not about the batteries. Batteries are now a commodity that they came down in price faster than I expected. Everybody's got software that goes with the batteries. You can get it for free, and so the real the real mover is the platform and the and the you, the the way we got lucky in terms of. Tr- falling into exactly the sweet spot for to enable mass deployment, which is you need to identify and harness the economic value and turn it into energy products that are transacted in the markets. If, if somebody's listening who is not in the energy space and you were going to describe what AMS does, what would you say? Um, we, we enable the, the transactions of, of, uh, of energy products in the market. If you're, if you're an end-use customer like Walmart and you're putting in distributed assets like solar and EV charging or, or batteries, you want to harness that and you want to sell demand response to the grid, our software enables you to identify how to do that, harness it, and that transaction. If you're a, uh, if you're a large developer and you've got a massive battery system you want to put with, with your solar farm and you have to provide not only uh, you know, firm and shape the solar, but you want to provide ancillary services to the grid, that's our software. We can tell you how to do it, and 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 we can we can harness it and actually create that um, those products in the energy market. So, as you're developing the software, how many people do you have now on the team? We have about 80 people. I think I'm counting five in the audience. Everybody from AMS can say say uh, they can't hear you. So clap if you're from AMS. All right. Yes, I've got I've got half my 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 women engineers are are here. <laughs> But uh, yeah, we've got about 80 people now. Um, and as you're building the software and hiring like crazy and building your team, having come from the public sector, how did you know how to do this? I made some, uh, I got lucky and I made some mistakes, but um, I made the right mistakes. I erred on uh, the right way when I made those mistakes. Um, I had I had really good mentors. I mean, the guys that helped me start the company on the, on the, tr- uh, the car ride up to the river, they were there for me when I when I had dumb questions. You know, how do you manage? How do you manage giving equity away in a new company? How do you um, how do you manage your investors? I've, been, I, I've never had private sector investors before. I worked in the government. I told people what to do. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a very strange way to start a relationship with investors. Um, so it uh, I had to learn a lot about it, and I had I had good mentors. What lessons took the longest to learn? I think the um, it's not so much that a lesson the lessons come really quickly. It's the muscle memory to know to recognize how to do something before you have to do it before you face a problem. And it's and I was trying to describe this to a friend of mine the other day. It's like raising money and support a VC backed company is a really different animal. And understanding. Um, how you run a company that has is, is has um, like working capital is a very very dangerous thing, right? You have to be pay a lot of attention to how much working capital you're spending to build projects, how you're going to finance those. Uh, you know, if you don't have the muscle memory of having done it before, com- really good companies die because they don't they don't see the problem of getting out over their skis when it comes to managing working capital. Really good companies die when they don't know how to raise a series B. 
You know, and it's a it's about it's about understanding the narrative. It's about understanding why investors invest in a series B versus a series A. It's about understanding your market. And these are not you can't learn these lessons in a book. You can actually gain some insights, but a lot of it is making the right mistakes early enough and getting and, and, and having the right knowing knowing what you don't know. The single greatest skill that I have had in my entire life has been knowing what I don't know and not being afraid to ask. Uh, it's kind of like asking directions. And I got lucky in that I asked the right question at the right time and I got enough of the right answer that I didn't get sucker punched by any mistake. Um, and so I, I think it's really the muscle memory. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as we now grow, you know, when you, people have said really interesting seminal things to me that I, that, that became pivotal points. A uh, good friend of mine, uh, Elizabeth Brinton said, um, the company changes after you grow, when you grow past 50 said the culture changes, the, the, your, your expenses change, everything changes when you go above 50. And so, I was be be really careful, and so as as soon as we went above fifty, like four or five uh, five months ago, I started paying really close attention to it, and and I I could see it coming, so it prepared me for it. And if I wasn't if I wasn't ready for that, by the time you recognize it's a mistake, it's too late to correct. Do you know what I mean? I do. So I don't know. It's uh, I think the the hardest lesson to learn is really about um, managing working capital and managing and sharing the vision. When you're a founder and you, it's not like we create, you know, me, three chicks and the dog in the garage created a software program and we're going to sell that software program to everybody. This was a very complicated vision of how we're going to completely transform the energy industry. And there aren't very many people that understood what we were trying to do from the beginning. And all of a sudden I had, you know, and, the, and there was a small group of us that understood what we were, what we were doing because we, we wrapped everything in the company around that first contract with Southern California Edison. We saw it come to life. We drew it on, the, on whiteboards. We, we knew what we were doing because we were drawing it. But taking that from being, we, we were a project company with a cool platform. Project companies don't scale. When we went to go to our Series B, we got we couldn't raise a Series B for the first six months. I thought it was, my Series A and my angel rounds were so easy that I thought this is a good piece of cake. We're just going to fly right through this. Six months into it, two bridges later, we're, I'm sucking on fumes, and I and, and it I finally understood that what people we had made our projects so famous that people saw us as a project company. And a project company doesn't scale, and it's like. It's the software, stupid. So, you know, focus on the plat. The platform is what is novel here. The platform is the enabling technology. So, so we went from being we had to transform from being a project company with a cool platform to being a platform company with really cool projects. And that meant when we now when we were up to fifty people and more, getting everyone to understand that change. We didn't pivot. We didn't change who we were. We didn't change what we were doing. We just ha- had kind of an epiphany around how the company is going to scale and ha- what we had to do with the platform in order to enable that scale and transferring that vision to a larger number of people who were work- came in and working every day on what they knew. That was really challenging. You said at one point you were, you were living off fumes. 
were there ever moments that you thought you were going to have to shut down? Yeah. What were, what were the darkest moments? Um, we were, uh, we, we were, uh, we were counting cash by the week. This was, I, I'm losing track of time. This was a year and a half ago. It was midway point between, uh, we had line of sight to, to a series B. We had, you know, energy impact partners had just come in and indicated a, a, an interest in, in, uh, in being the lead on the series B. We didn't have a term sheet from them yet, but, but we saw a light at the end of the tunnel that we were going to, that we were, we had gotten traction. We were going to be able to do this. We were counting cash by the week. And I remember our, uh, our administrator at the time switched us from, from a hundred, uh, unlimited PTO to 20 days of PTO. Cause she convinced me that everybody really wanted the time because they, I don't know why they thought it was more valuable. I thought unlimited was more valuable. What did I know? But when she did that, the PTO became a liability on my books. And all of a sudden, I had, the, I had my finance people, my lawyers, telling me, you are now in the zone of insolvency because that one move put us in the, put us, our liabilities above. So all of a sudden, I was facing, I had my lawyers who helped me start the company uh, from Wilson Sonsini. They, they were, they've been great, but they were, they were almost like reading me my rights in terms of saying, okay, now this is what the board has to do with your fiduciary duties where that you have to begin a wind down. And I just had Tourette's. I just started like, <laughs> we are not winding yeah. down the company. That, you you yeah. gotta be kidding me. We are on the ascendancy. We are, we are doing it right. We've got the, these opportunities that we're looking at are unbelievable. How can you even be having this conversation? And it's like, I just, rejected it. And in the middle of the night, you know, and I was starting to lose sleep, but, um, the next day I cashed out my entire pension fund and I put a million dollars into the company and I, I seeded the bridge round with my own money and it allowed, and I got Schwarzenegger and a bunch of other, my, my angel round, my, some of my, my besties that started the company from the angel round. And we put it together, we put in a couple million dollars and, uh, and then I, I was able to close a, a five million dollar bridge round, and that's what got us through to the end of the close. That's if I had amazing. not cashed in my, if that was a, a huge experience for me because I realized that I was there trying to convince my friends, people I who trusted me. I said, I swear to God, we're on the ascendancy. This uh, that that I would never ask to take your money. I wouldn't do that unless I was really confident. And that's when it occurred to me, fine, put your own money up. And if you're that confident, if I was that confident, then I'm not going to lose my retirement fund because it'll be there in the, in the preferred stock. And so I had to put my, I had to say, well, if I'm willing, if I'm willing to bet that I'm going to, you know, that I'm going to, I'm not, I'm going to be okay with my entire retirement fund. The IRS is a different matter. That, that's, that's looming, but um, that's still looming. I have until October. I'll be okay. But, um, but the, uh, yeah, I mean, I, it, it was, I had to put my money where my mouth was, and it made all the difference because when a founder puts their own skin in the game, the, the entire narrative with potential investors changed overnight. You are clearly a driven person that has a lot of persistence and grit. I'm curious if, so oftentimes there's a lot, there's, there's a recognition of the discrimination against gay people, lesbian people. I'm wondering if you think that being a lesbian has actually benefited you in the company. And if so, why or why not? I actually don't know what it's like not to be one. So it's, it's a, <laughs> that's a little hard for me to, to, to know. I, it's, it's never even crossed my mind. Yeah. It's, it's just never been an issue. I've, I mean, I, I mean, I've been a, uh, I was aware of some discomfort as I was, uh, you know, through my political career because, you know, I get hit on like other 
women did in the in the uh, you know in those positions, and I had to. They were barking up the wrong tree. That was obvious, <laughs> but that made it a little easier. But um, but it, I don't remember ever feeling uh, discriminated against or or awkward. You know, it, it could be a little it could be a little awkward when you're in a you're you're dealing with investors or people you don't know, and you're constantly in dog and pony shows, and people ask you, "Oh, what does your husband do?" You know, you always have to have a uh, you, you learn a, a, a way of speaking without pronouns because it's like I don't know you, and I'm not going to spend the, mm-hmm. the the emotional capital of you know. Of giving you my life story, so you just you just parry it. Are there are there is there something about being a lesbian that you feel like has actually benefited you in the sense of like not subscribing to things that women may take on when they're not gay? Uh, there were no accidental pregnancies. <laughs> um, I think, you know, there was a moment in my life when I wanted to have kids. I think I would have had a completely, I wouldn't have had the political career. I don't, I think it's, uh, it's a heroic act to have children and, and, you know, pursue a, a, a professional career. I, I think it, it takes a strength that I don't think I have to do that. So I, I really admire women who can. Um, but I, it would have, it would have been very, very challenging, I think. Yeah. Um, another challenge that I know you dealt with and, and are public about is struggling with alcoholism um, previously. Curious if you could tell us what was happening in your life at the time and how did you overcome it? You know, um, I, you know, alcohol and I never got along really well. We were very good friends. We hung out. We partied a lot. But um, I didn't... I, I, is this I never, back in the Jersey days? Are oh, we yeah. going back to the oh, Jersey yeah, Shore? Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> there emphatic, were a yes. lot of... Lot of, lot of a lot of things went along with the with the with the beer and the alcohol and the Southern Comfort. I think I missed a month and a half of school on Southern Comfort once. Uh, but um, but I I was never um, I was always very high functioning, but I just couldn't handle alcohol well. It's like there's a, a dodge in the, in 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 the world of of, uh, of recovery where you know uh, one drink is too many and a hundred is never enough. And so my, my problem was I couldn't say no to to it, and I just I got sick. I didn't I didn't handle it very well. And so I tried several times to get, uh, get sober when I was in my teens. I noticed when I was like 15 years old, when I made that move from the Jersey Shore to, to, to Pennsylvania, I remember sitting there writing in my journal <clears throat> about how I didn't want to be around drugs anymore. I didn't want to be around alcohol anymore. I was, I was 15, moving wow. from, I was a, going from a sophomore in high school to a junior in high school. And my... Um, uh, and it was amazing. My mother was an alcoholic, and I found out that she was an alco- alcoholic when I was 15, and it was that was devastating for me because I didn't. It, all of a sudden, a lot of things made sense. But um, but it's funny because after my mother died, I found yeah, I went through her her things, and in a jewelry box on the bottom of a jewelry box was a p- pa- that page from my journal when I was mm-hmm. 15. I don't even know how she got it, but it was that page me struggling with alcohol. Uh, in that in that jewelry box from my mother, but um, that was a big experience. My mother said to me, "Was uh, you know?" I came downstairs. My mother was deaf, and so I, I came downstairs and uh, one day when I was fifteen, and she was crying in the kitchen. I was like, "You know, what's wrong?" And she said, "I." I she explained, "I'm an alcoholic. I, I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I have a, a sponsor, and I need to call my sponsor, and I can't call my can't. Well, my, I need you to call my sponsor for me." And I was shaking. I was like, it was really hard for me to take that all in. And I tried to call. I don't think I could. I, you know, I remember leaving the house and I was really, really shooken up. But 
once you hear those words, I'm an alcoholic, every single time I took a drink, in my, I put a drink in my hand since that day, I could never do that without thinking, am I an alcoholic? And so it, it, may, it gave me a level of self-awareness that, uh, that probably saved my life. And then, uh, so I, I really, by the time I, I, I got sober for a couple of years when I was, you know, my 30s, and I thought, oh, I'm really not an alcoholic. Look at me. I can go for 18 months without, without a drink. I, I, why am I thinking I'm an alcoholic? So I started drinking again because obviously I was not an alcoholic. Bad idea. Because um, you pick up right where you left off. And so I, uh, I ended up, when, my last day of the, as, 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 a, as the executive director of the Democratic Party in Sacramento, we all went out. And I, I don't remember. I just remember the Jägermeister for like, you know, one shot of Jägermeister. I don't remember much after that, but it was the first blackout I'd ever had. Mm-hmm. And it scared the bejeebers out of me because the next day I found out that I had been driving. It was the only time I'd ever had a blackout in my life. So I was so fortunate to get these lessons without killing myself, without killing somebody else, without hurting people. I was really, really lucky. And so, um, so I, I struggled to, to keep it under control. And I, meanwhile, my political career is taking off. And I was in uh, Washington, D.C., working in Senator Feinstein's office when I, I had people around me. And I just I, I, I remember saying the words, I can't do this alone. And that was the moment I hit bottom. And a friend of mine said, you don't have to do this alone. And I, I, I had friends who you know, got me into the program and basically helped sponsor me. And I had, to, I had to figure out how to not drink wine in Senator Feinstein's office. That must have been hard. Yeah, it was hard, very hard. <laughs> She's handing you the glass at the end of the day. So. Um, how tightly is your identity tied to the creation of AMS? Um. Not, no, it's not that tied. Uh, it's a really fun and an important part of my, uh, my career, my life. Uh, this, is, this is the most, working for Schwarzenegger was the most fun thing I've ever done. This is the most meaningful thing I've ever done. And it, there's, there's something about creating something from scratch that is hard to describe. And there's something about... Um, Coming, walking into the office and seeing all of these people who's, who've trusted me and trust that we're, gonna, we're not going to screw it up and they're not going to be it without a job or we're not going to screw it up and, you know, and, and you know, make some huge mistake and, and, and hurt the company just because we, you know, we, we didn't guide it properly. It's an enormous responsibility when you have a lot of people that count on you. And so it's a it's a really it's a meaningful thing you know Dude. but my but, but i wouldn't say my I'm, I'm my identity is is tied to it yeah. we're going to move into our high voltage round quick questions quick answers the first question is if you were an animal what animal would you be and why uh a wolf you are the third wait you are the third wolf on what it takes out of 11 please tell us why um, I, I think I, i've always had an affinity for uh for the the, the lone nature of the wolf and um, but not lonely lone but not lonely and uh, it eats what it kills <laughs> uh, nothing seems more quintessential Susan Kennedy than that line thank you um, what inspires you uh, acts of kindness inspire me um, people don't have to be kind and there's a lot of uh, winner-take-all mentality that is kind of grips our society. 
and that and they and that sort of winner take all mentality has become an ends justifies the means, um, which has infected our our uh, political system, and so you know, acts of selflessness, acts of kindness are what inspires me the most. If you had to switch to a new career tomorrow, what oh, would it be? Oh, I know what that is. I already got it what picked is- out. I'm going to be a novelist. Oh, yeah. What would you write? Well, about? I'm going to be an I'm going to be an author. I've already got three books started, oh, and. Wow. Um, I'm talking a page and a half, (laughs) but, uh, but yeah, no, I want to, I want to write, uh, I've got three biographies I want to write and I've got a, um, uh, two political novels. I I started my first book. It was called Machiavelli's The Prince (laughs) 2.0. And if anyone, because I worked for a Democratic governor and then I worked for a Republican governor. And so I was seen as this Machiavelli who, who, you know, uh, who understood how the courtiers worked. So, and then a friend of mine said, you know what? Enough people hate you. Don't do that. <laughs> um, other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? Uh, a lot of people. I mean, it's hard to pick one. Um, I would have to say Keith Brackpool, the guy who really um, helped me translate my political experience into being an entrepreneur. Um, that, was, that was huge. I don't think I could have done this without Keith. When have you failed? When have I failed? Um, I, I haven't failed yet, really. I mean, I don't believe in failure. And that's, um, that was something that Arnold Schwarzenegger taught me. But um, failure, you mean, if, you're, if, you're try, if you're trying to do something new, you're going to, you're going to fail. Fail. Failure is part of the, part of success. It's on the road to success. I don't know what failure is. When are you your best self? My best self. Well, given that I'm inspired by selflessness, um, I am my best self when I have this karma thing where if I go to a, if I stay in a hotel or I eat at a restaurant, like a breakfast place or whatever, I, I have to leave what I will leave whatever the largest bill is in my wallet as a tip. And so, and I carry around large bills for a reason. And, um, there was one time and I, so I, I kind of do it all the time. It's a karma thing, but I, I did it at, the, at, a, at an airport restaurant for, at a breakfast place one time. And the woman chased me down the hall and threw her arms around me. Mm-hmm. And I thought it's worth it. Oh, anyway. What is your worst trait? My worst trait. Um, my worst trait is I. I can get frustrated, and I can get really sharp. It's like I I get I get impatient, and I, I've I've been in power too long where. That's a dangerous thing because when you when you don't have the patience to explain something or bring people along, you become ugly. And I can say, just freaking do it, you know. And that's that's my worst self. If there was just one person who was going to hear this podcast, who would you want it to be? Arnold. Oh. Arnold, are you listening? <laughs> <laughs> now he's a he's he's a. He's a great guy, and is and he's. I'm spoiled. I could never work for a politician again. And this is a guy who taught me a lot. He uh, he honestly believes that there's you can do anything, 
anything you put your mind to it, you can do it. And I've never seen that applied to politics before. And it was mind bending. We got we, we, we did so many great things in, in, in politics that people will never know about uh, because he had that belief. Uh, to close, finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because... Working capital. They don't realize uh, the danger of working capital. Um, could you, for those listening, to explain what working capital is? Working capital is I need to invest in the capital expenses to build a battery project. I have to go buy the batteries, right? And I'm going to sell that project and I'm going to make profit on I sell that project after it's developed. But somebody has, you have to borrow the money in order to pay for the batteries to get the project built. And so $10 million is a lot of working capital for a small company. Success is? Success is uh, getting at least a 10x return for my investors. <laughs> If I could have done one thing differently, I would have. I would have done more to identify. If I could have done one thing differently, I would have had a, a, a more robust product strategy session with people who have done platform growth, who have grown platforms before, because it's a, it's a whole industry with a whole, its own ecosystem and its own, um, its own um, culture. And it's very different than, you know, software as a service platform, platforms that provide these kind of software as a service, very, very different type of company to build. And I, uh, I did, that's one area where I didn't know what I didn't know. And so that's what I would do differently. If the world knew me for just one thing, it would be the world knew me for just one thing. You know, uh, one? <laughs> you can do two if you want. <laughs> you know, uh, the, if I do nothing else in, in politics, I've spent most, I'm a student of history and I'm a student of, of, of government. I've, and uh, I think one of the most meaningful things that, uh, that I've ever done was work with Schwarzenegger on changing the political system to, for the open primary and for getting the, the, uh, the, the district drawing out of, out of politicians' hands, basically bringing representative government back to the people. And um, I think, it's, I think it, it will, it's a major, major change. I'm most proud of? I'm really proud of AMS. <laughs> I, am, I am really proud of what we've done. You have many reasons to be. Last question, to build a successful startup, what it takes is? Belief. You have to have, uh, you have to believe that you can do anything. You have to have courage and faith to just do what you've never done before. That is a perfect way to end. Please join me in thanking Susan Kennedy. You can listen to all our What It Takes interviews since 2017 right here. And join us for news stories of founders who are building a carbon-free future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. We're launching new episodes monthly throughout 2021. Subscribe everywhere you get your podcasts. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse in partnership with Postscript Audio. 
Powerhouse partners with leading corporations and investors to help them lead the next century of clean technology innovation. Our fund, Powerhouse Ventures, invests in founding teams, building innovative software to rapidly transform our global energy and mobility systems. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund. That's powerhouse.fund. Our executive producer is Stephen Lacey. Our producers are Jamie Kaiser, Rye Story Fisher, and Emma McDonough. Sean Marquand mixed the episodes and composed our music. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes.